2: The outbreak of COVID-19 has been declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization. There are over 100,000 recorded cases around the world, with governments and scientists scrambling to staunch it. You're listening to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist, and on today's show... The Anatomy of the Coronavirus. The spread of COVID-19 is slowing in China, but cases in the rest of the world are still climbing. In Britain, one of the country's health ministers has tested positive. And in Italy, now the worst country affected after China, a nationwide quarantine has been imposed. If scientists are to find a treatment for COVID 19 or to prevent a future outbreak like it, they need to first understand more about the virus. To give us a science lesson is Jeffrey Carr, the Economist Science and Technology
3: Editor. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Ken. So, Jeff, What is the coronavirus? Well, there is no the coronavirus. Coronaviruses are a group. Most of them live in other animals, uh, but there are seven which infect people. Two of them are quite widespread and cause the symptoms of a common cold. Two of them are quite rare and, and cause no serious symptoms. Two previous ones do cause serious symptoms. And a seventh has just emerged, which causes very serious symptoms. And which are the ones that cause serious symptoms? The first one was called SARS, and that appeared in 2002. Uh, It causes respiratory uh, illness and uh, eventually pneumonia, if you're unlucky. Then there was one called MERS that appeared a few years after that uh, in the Middle East. That causes similar symptoms. And now we have this third one, which is a similar virus to the original SARS, but not identical.
2: And where do they come
3: from? Both types of SARS have come from China. Both of those viruses appear to have originated in bats, although probably not caught directly from bats. The MERS was detected in the Middle East, originated in camels.
2: Do we know how many variants of COVID-19 exist?
3: There was probably only one transfer event. It probably all goes back to a single individual. So there was an original strain of the virus, but a new one evolved later, which has different spreading characteristics. So there are two strains of virus out there at the moment.
2: How is the virus transmitted?
3: Oh, it's transmitted on, on, um, on small droplets that you sneeze or cough out through the air. So a handshake? You can pick the virus up from surfaces. Obviously, the droplets land on surfaces. And if you touch the surface, then it'll come onto your hands, yes.
2: OK, so that's why we're people shake hands less. Yes, indeed. Tell me a bit about the structure of the virus itself. How does it work?
3: Like all viruses, they hijack body cells. A virus is not quite a living organism, but works like a living organism. It uh, it just relies for part of its life cycle on cellular apparatus it doesn't itself possess. So the important bits of a virus are the proteins that form its body, if you like, and the genome inside it. The genome inside it, it injects into the cell, and that genome then replicates all the viral proteins, new viruses are assembled and ejected from the cell.
2: Okay, so how does it do that?
3: Well, the coronaviruses are what are known as RNA viruses. There are two ways that genes can be encoded. One is DNA, which is uh, something that most people will be familiar with. It sits in the middle of your cells in the nucleus and acts as a store of information for the making of proteins. RNA is a similar molecule that transmits that information from the nucleus to the protein-making machinery. These particular viruses, and and the SARS-CoV-2 in particular, have their genes in RNA form already. So they are, if you like, uh, packaged and ready to go. So as soon as the virus makes contact with the cell and breaks into it, it releases the RNA into the cell and that that RNA can then be translated into proteins immediately by the protein-making machinery.
2: And how can knowing all of this help us create either a remedy or a vaccine?
3: Okay. Well, the more you understand about the mechanism of a virus, the more places that there are that you can glue it up. So... I described the RNA system. If you can stop the RNA replicating inside a cell, there's a separate mechanism for replicating the RNA to create more genes. That will stop the virus reproducing. And you can do that in principle by uh, introducing RNA-like letters that don't actually exist in nature, and that will stop the RNA working. Or you can stop the virus attaching itself to the cell in the first place, The mechanism by which it does that is quite well understood now. There's a protein on the surface of the virus which locks onto a protein on the surface of the cell, both particular proteins. You can interfere with that process, either with drugs or with a vaccine. Then you would stop the uh, infection happening.
2: So that's a cause of optimism. How far away are we from developing a drug or a vaccine?
3: For a vaccine, quite a long way, because vaccines are very specific. You have to tickle the immune system uh, in order to produce very specific recognising systems, antibodies, and particular cells called T-cells, which respond only to the virus or virus-infected cells. Drugs is more hopeful because drugs very often work on other targets than the ones they were designed for. So if you have a drug which is already in medical use, then it's gone through all of its safety trials. Its side effects are well understood. So all you have to prove is that it works for the new target. And there are several drugs out there which are being looked at. They are known to be safe because they've been tested and work on in other things. One was um, developed for Ebola fever. It was never used because a better drug was developed, but it's sitting in the reservoirs uh, of the company that invented it. And it's now being tested. And a time frame? For a vaccine, you'd be talking two or three years. For a drug. If you could show that it worked and it was already been proven safe, you could get it out in a matter of months. Jeff Carr, thank you very much. Ken, thank you.
2: The number of deaths from COVID-19 has now reached over 4,000, but the virus is more selective than at first glance. According to the World Health Organization, the death rate is 3.4%. That is much higher than that of a seasonal flu, which has the rate of 0.1. But a better way to understand the fatality rate is to consider the data by age group. Here at The Economist, we like figuring out how to portray data in sound. For COVID-19, the death rate for children under 9 years old is zero. And for ages 10 to 40, it is just 0.2%. For 40 to 49-year-olds, the rate is 0.4%. But for those in their 50s, the rate jumps to 1.3%. And it is almost three times higher still for those in their 60s, at 3.6%. In the 70s age group, it more than doubles again to an 8% fatality rate. And for those over 80, the fatality rate is at its highest, almost doubling again at 14.8%. The death rates by age show that older people are at considerably more risk of succumbing to the virus. This underscores the need to protect the elderly from catching it at all. And you can see many more charts like this in The Economist, where you can also read Jeff's article, The Anatomy of the Virus. To subscribe, go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for
0: $12 or £12. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation...
2: Researchers are working around the clock to understand the structure of the virus and find a treatment or even a vaccine. Research and development can be a slow process, time which many patients, especially the elderly, do not have. But some organizations are trying to expedite new discoveries.
4: My name is Rupert Beale, and I'm a clinician scientist group leader at the Francis Crick Institute. Our lab works on uh, the molecular cell biology of viral replication, in particular how the viruses interact with the host and how the host notices that the viruses are replicating. So we call this host-pathogen interactions. So,
2: Rupert, what is the Crick Institute doing?
4: The main thing that our laboratory is doing, and at the moment the main focus of the research, is to try to identify All of the host proteins, that's proteins in URI, that the virus needs in order to replicate. And I should state that this is very much a collaborative project building on a collaboration that we have already with colleagues at the Roslin Institute in Edinburgh. That's going to involve using the CRISPR technology that a lot of your um, listeners will have heard about to knock out all the genes in the human genome and then test which of those genes is important for the replication of the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus. And what is the goal? So the initial goal is simply to identify all the factors that are required And the, as it were, overarching purpose of this is to identify targets that we could intervene into with, for example, uh, drugs, either that target essential host processes that the virus requires or to target the interaction uh, between the virus and our, our own proteins.
2: If you do find a hit, how long would it take from a success in the lab to something that people can take at a hospital?
4: That very much depends. So, as it were, the best case scenario would be that we identified a hit in the laboratory for which there was already an existing safe drug that could be prescribed. So that would be something which could in principle be brought forward in a a relatively short timescale after our sort of research is completed if it's a question of identifying targets to develop new drugs to then obviously that's much further down the line and you're, you're more likely talking about something which would be important for outbreaks in the future rather than this particular outbreak
2: now you're working in a hospital as well what is it like there what, what's going
4: on what are you seeing what's happening so there are lots of preparations going on. Obviously, there's a very fast-moving situation, and we're responding to the guidelines that have been laid down, uh, in our case, by Public Health England. I suppose time will tell uh, as to whether or not those preparations that we're making are adequate. Obviously, we've seen the situation develop in Lombardy, and we hope that we're going to have enough time to be able to prevent something like that happening. But it's clear that we're going to be dealing with a situation where there will be a high burden of disease, and uh, we hope that when that happens, we do in fact have the resources that we need to adequately treat patients as they come in.
2: And it's not just the Francis Crick Institute. The Gates Foundation is also looking for a solution.
5: What we did is this week we launched a major initiative in partnership with the UK-based Wellcome Trust and also MasterCard of up to $125 million to create what we call is a global therapeutics accelerator for COVID-19.
2: Mark Sussman is the chief executive.
5: And that is really to try and triage, use the best available science data, crowd in all the existing knowledge to what are going to be the highest priority and likely most impactful therapeutic interventions to address COVID-19 in the coming weeks and months.
2: And how will that work in practice?
5: So in practice, that starts with screening large existing compound libraries that have already been tested for safety and efficacy, because if... Any of those are proven to be efficacious against COVID-19. That's a much faster pathway to market, and so that's something we've kicked off already, screening big libraries of tens of thousands of different existing compounds. Our hope is, you know, we can move fairly rapidly into the top three or four most likely candidates and put them straight into trials. And, you know, if we're successful, that moves quickly onto a regulatory pathway. And and again, as I mentioned, manufacturing at scale. If those first compounds don't work as we hope, then we may have to look for novel compounds and that makes it longer. But that's essentially the process underway and that we've kickstarted this week.
2: And when do you expect to see results?
5: The initial results could happen in terms of you know do we have hits from the compound library that look like they're potentially uh, impactful against COVID-19 could happen in sort of days or weeks, but that's a long way away from making sure that those are treatments that could come out and be usable by the general public. So really, you're talking in even an optimistic process takes you you know up to a year till we have something uh, usable and useful at scale.
2: At MIT, researchers are exploring how artificial intelligence can be used to find answers faster than humans, and with solutions that human minds might not have come up with. Regina Barzali is a professor of computer science at the university. Her team used AI to discover an entirely new antibiotic. Now, that's not a treatment for a virus, but for things like infections. But perhaps the same pioneering method could be applied to viruses.
1: We can see now, you know, what's going on in the world, how one, uh, you know, infectious disease can affect the life of, you know, millions of people and affect economy and everything. So in this case, the coronavirus, it's a virus. But when we are talking on antibiotics and growing resistance, we are in an extremely unprotected state, because the resistance increases, part of it is due to the fact that the antibiotics sometimes are used out of prescriptions, but another big part of it is that in the last decade or so, there was really not much breakthrough in this area, and majority of antibiotics that were filed, you know, to regulatory agencies are kind of paraphrases, close paraphrases of the drugs which are already on the market and which are likely to cause more resistance. So in some ways, we're extremely unprotected. And we really need to have a technology to create antibiotics with a desired profile on demand. So how did you
2: use artificial intelligence to search for a new antibiotic?
1: So, when we started doing the research, our collaborators um, in the biology department, Professor Jim Collins and Dr. Jonathan Stokes, they screened 2500 molecules testing whether these molecules can inhibit the growth of E. coli. So this kind of testing can be done in the lab. And what we got from them is a list of these molecules uh, and their capacity to, you know, to stop the growth, and the goal is to learn how to map the specifics of chemical structure to their ability to inhibit growth. We were able to identify a set of molecules which had very, very strong active antibacterial activities. So the team zoomed in on one of these molecules, which they call halicin which was uh, tested against some pan-resistant species and what they've seen that it can kill the pathogen very fast, it is uh, working well even when you kind of grow the resistant strains of this pathogen and um, it can even kill the pathogen when they are in dormant state. And what was interesting is it can walk on five or six different pathogens which are considered crucial by World Health Organization.
2: Now, if you didn't use an AI algorithm to crunch through 100 million molecules to analyze them, how long would it have taken a grad student to peer through a microscope to do that?
1: I don't think that even uh, definitely not a grad student because they're not going to graduate until their retirement but even if you're looking at a high throughput screening you know going through hundreds of millions of molecules it's extremely long and expensive process and I don't think that it's really a realistic even setup even for a reasonable size pharmaceutical company to go through.
2: So this is so interesting. If you were able to have artificial intelligence predict what might work best, and you came up with a molecule that indeed does very well, perhaps you could use the same technique for other problems such as maybe coronavirus.
1: So the mechanism itself for like training and predicting the property, the only thing that it requires is, uh, you know, molecule and a number. Theoretically, it can be translated to other areas like coronavirus. But here the main thing is, do you have the right training set, which our biology team compiled, which have a lot of diversity and has some interesting compound that is something to learn from. Mm -hmm. But um, my hope is that given the success of the model, you know, in antibacterial space, it can be applied, you know, to a broader set of diseases.
2: Now, Regina, I'm sure that there are many young computer scientists, AI engineers, researchers, and bioinformatics experts who are inspired by your research and are scratching their head and wondering, "Do I still have a future? Am I going to have a job? Maybe AI will do all the work for me, and there's no role for humans."
1: But humans were the one who selected the right compounds, who knew what they're doing when they gave the material. Uh, for the model to learn from. And there are two ways you can put the knowledge into the algorithm. One way if you explicitly encode it, and that's what people were trying to do in these models for the last, you know, century. Another way to do it is to say, you know, model may learn it in a different way, and it can find other patterns in the data that I cannot see. But my job is really to find the right data for the model, and then to utilize model prediction in a smart way so that I find what I'm looking for.
2: Regina Barzili, thank you. And our thanks to Rupert Beale and Mark Sussman. Thanks for listening to Babbage. I'm Kenneth Kukier. And in London, washing my hands every chance I get, this is The Economist.